This is an ABC podcast. Have you ever had that feeling that because you're the new person at work or because you're young that you're being overworked? Maybe you're given too much responsibility or you're constantly staying back late without being paid. That's what young healthcare workers, including doctors and nurses, have been telling us here at Hack for years. But now they're fighting back. Massive class action cases are making their way through the courts. And soon we're going to be speaking to one of the people involved in them. Also, how did your Valentine's Day end up going yesterday? Maybe you decided there's room for other people. The idea of poly relationships is back in the news, but some say it's been misrepresented again. But first, let's head overseas. Hack. We're learning new details tonight about chemicals burning and leaking into the air and water following a train derailment in Ohio. On Triple J. Yeah, because of all the balloon and UFO chat lately, you might have missed another story in the US that also sounds like it could be out of a movie. About 12 days ago, a train crashed near a small town spilling heaps of toxic chemicals. And now there are animals turning up dead and people freaking out. It's a place called East Palestine in the US state of Ohio. Authorities are trying to make sure the area is safe following the spill, but already locals are concerned that the potentially deadly chemicals have made their way into the community and are making people and wildlife sick. Well, let's get up to speed. Professor Mark Patrick Taylor is an expert in environmental contamination with Macquarie University, and he's also the chief environmental scientist at EPA Victoria. Professor Taylor, thanks for joining me on Hack. No, it's, it's fantastic. Love it. All right, some of the chemicals that have been spilled sound pretty grisly. Vinyl chloride, butyl acrylate, ethyl hexyl acrylate. What the hell are they? Well, they're, they're all industrial chemicals, the solvents, and, and vinyl chloride is the one that I would be most concerned about. It's a very clearly established, uh, they're all organic chemicals, and vinyl chloride's a carcinogen. And of course, it's a carcinogen, but it depends about whether it's going to be carcinogenic or not whether and what the dose is and the dose determines what the response is so if there's only a tiny little bit and it's well below any levels of concern the response will be nothing to record whereas if the dose is quite high there's a potential you know potential and very significant uh, risk of harm right but you're saying that there has to be a certain amount that you're exposed to and maybe even over a certain period of time before that could happen that's correct i mean you know everything can be harmful Eating too many Mars bars can be harmful, <laughs> but it just depends how many Mars bars you eat or how much vinyl chloride you're exposed to. So it's the dose that counts. It's the concentration that you're exposed to over the period of time. So if you get exposed to a tiny amount over a, a, you know, a small period of time or a long period of time, it's inconsequential. Whereas if you're exposed to a lot over a short period of time, the dose is uh, is extremely high and it's the exposure period is very short so you, you know that's when the risk is greatest does that help explain it yeah certainly um so there is a potential danger here following this sort of spill but the pictures of the incident first unfolding you know almost two weeks ago were really sort of confronting is this one of the worst incidents we've seen in a while do you think it, it looks pretty significant but I, i've obviously done a little bit of reading around this situation and um, I understand the US EPA have been doing some monitoring in and around the site, and they've set up air monitoring, the sampled water. And so far, according to the information that I've been able to ascertain, they haven't found, they haven't detected any changes in the river at the intake, but they're 
um, and also I understand that the air quality as well wasn't uh, significantly affected in the adjoining community. Now, of course, immediately around the site of the impact, it's it's really contaminated. So the authorities will be working uh, to contain that contamination and to limit its spread and movement. Advice would have gone out to the homeowners um, that the, the homeowners needed to be uh, uh, cautious. But it, I understand that the levels that the EPA considers dangerous were below human health risk even though particulate matter itself was elevated during a control burn. So they will be focusing on the site, containing the problem and doing assessment of air and water off-site to make sure there's no off-site impact. And clearly, if you're a resident in any area where there's any major fire, you do your best to stay out of the smoke. It's just plain common sense. It's the same thing with any major industrial or environmental event. Steer clear if you can. It's like during the floods. You just stay out of the flood water because it, it could present a risk of harm. And the same thing here would be uh, the, you know, with respect to the waterways or using the waterways for any sort of agricultural purposes at the time and or immediately afterwards until it's really clearly established that there is no significant risk. With those readings that you mentioned, with the EPA saying that they haven't seen anything that causes alarm, I mean, can they? how confident can they be in that? Is it something that could change over time? Or if they're not seeing it now, then they're not going to see it later? Well, I think the major risk with, with, with atmospheric emissions, the problem, the risk would be greatest during the event when the equipment's burning or when there is the first release. The longer term issue is what's happened to any of the spill, you know, the, the, the organic compounds, whether it gets into the groundwater, whether it percolates through the soil. So there may be a more longitudinal problem. And no doubt uh, the EPA and their scientists in the United States will be monitoring the water chemistry to ensure that that's not the case. But quite often there's a long time, uh, long residence time in the soil, and that will then filter into the water. Now, sometimes it might filter into the water at such a rate that it's diluted, it doesn't become a problem. If there's a big rain event, it could flush it from the soil into the river and then there'll be downstream impacts. So all of those things are possible. What normally happens is an authority, an EPA, for example, Environment Protection Authority, will be out there assessing uh, the risk at the time and over the time uh, that they can say, okay, now we can go into recovery. So at the moment, they'll be in response phase. Once they know it's safe, they'll go into recovery phase and they will do the necessary work to ensure that the systems in the environment can be uh, moved towards a state of recovery. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the waterways and the soil. And because we're having, you know, there's people in the town who have reported that they've seen fish turning up dead in waterways, frogs turning up dead in waterways, um, foxes that are struggling to breathe, and they believe that it's linked to this chemical spill. Um, is that something that could be possible or is it people maybe freaking out a little bit? Well, look, all of those things are entirely possible. Um, and what would normally happen, a veterinarian would take any animals that are either, have died or either injured and they would do an assessment to see what exposures they've got. But in order to assess, you know, uh, association is not causation. And so what you would want to do is have a look at animals that are not by the area or are upstream of that system, uh, you know, of where the, where the spill may have got into the, uh, in, into the stream. You'd do some sampling upstream as well as downstream where the frogs are affected. The frog should really be downstream of the site, assuming it's water, you know, water source uh, is, the, is the risk here. And you would do that piece of work to try and understand, is there a difference between upstream, downstream? You'd look for the contaminants of concern, and then you'd do that assessment. You'd be able to determine then what the 
you know, what the likely cause of the death is in, in those or injuries in those animals are. And obviously you're not involved in sort of the, the recovery or the, the research that's going on, but have, from what you've seen or been able to find out, do you think the people in charge of dealing with that are doing the right thing? Look, this is the US EPA. We've modelled our EPA many ways on what the US EPA have done. We've ingested many of the standards that they've used. We use many of the standards that they use for laboratory analysis. They're, they're a model regulator and you know, we look to the US EPA many occasions to understand what work they have done on gases and on pollutants and on soils and on waters. And they're, they're, you know, they're a significant and important source of regulatory guidance that Australian EPAs and worldwide EPAs use. Often if there is no environmental safety value or guideline value, in, in a jurisdiction in Australia or elsewhere, people often default to the US EPA value as a default international benchmark. Right. So pretty confident that if they, they're confident that nothing is major is going wrong, then things should be okay. Look, they'll be collecting samples using standard methods and they'll have their samples analysed in an appropriately accredited laboratory, if not in their own accredited laboratory. They'll be independent. They'll be providing the best possible advice. All right, fantastic. Thanks, Professor Mark Patrick Taylor, for coming on to Hack. Thank you very much, and happy to come on again at any time, talk about anything. Thanks for that. Related to environment, of course. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Cheers. Hack on Triple Jack. That was Mark Patrick Taylor there, a professor in environmental contamination at Macquarie Uni. And getting some texts in, Reese says, without knowing anything about those chemicals, they sound nasty just from the names. Yeah, that's right. Ethyl hexyl acrylate. Sounds like someone that could be playing the boiler room sometime soon. Hack. A 13-hour shift could sometimes become 16 hours with overtime. That's just the hours that we're expected to work because for many of our bosses, that's what they have to do. On Triple J. Most of us are already pretty nervous at the thought of going to hospital, right? But imagine if you found out that the doctor treating you has already been working for 18 hours. Or maybe they haven't had a day off in ages because they constantly get called in. You might start to freak out. Well, it could actually happen to you, and maybe it already has. We've been reporting on this for ages at Hack about how young doctors are being overworked and underpaid. But now some doctors have lawyered up and they're going after the people they say are responsible. Hayden Stevens is a lawyer involved in one of these cases. He's leading a class action against the Victorian government. Hayden, thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you, Tim. Look, when we talk about junior doctors, who should we be thinking about? Like, what kind of work are they doing? Uh, these are commonly known as interns or residents or junior medical officers, sometimes referred to as doctors in training. But they're doctors who have just graduated from medical school and have entered the public health system. Right, so they're quite young still and they're obviously trying to learn on the job. Is that right? That's right, but uh, also with an enormous amount of responsibility. So for many of your listeners, I'm sure, who have been in hospital, unfortunately, <laughs> suffering an accident or whatever the case might be, it's often a junior doctor, such as an intern or resident or even on occasion a registrar, who will see you and offer an opinion about your injuries. I was going to ask about that. What kind of ratio is it of senior medical staff to junior staff if you walk into a hospital? Do you know? I don't know the actual ratio, but the best way to think about the junior doctor cohort uh, is best um, characterised by their classification. So an intern is someone who is in their first year after medical school. 
a resident or a medical officer is someone who is in their second or sometimes third year. Uh, and a registrar is someone in, who can be in that classification really for a number of years. So uh, this is generally speaking, but I would suspect it's probably any doctor that is from their first year post-medical school up to five, sometimes seven years uh, post-medical school. And through that entire phase, they're considered junior doctors and they're the people that have been overworked. That's exactly right. So it's uh, in Victoria, at least, I, I think there are approximately around about 10,000, maybe 11,000 junior doctors working uh, across hospitals across Victoria as we speak today. And when we talk about overworked, obviously, it's a pretty broad term. What, what does it mean? Is it an issue of having to juggle too many patients or is it physically doing way more hours than they should be? It's the latter. You know, it's excessive hours performed day in, day out. Uh, often uh, extended shifts, performing necessary duties well beyond their rostered hours, uh, which is obviously causing an enormous burden for junior doctors. And does that mean uh, they're obviously missing out on sleep, they may be fatigued while they're on the job? That would obviously have some impacts. For many of them, absolutely. Um, I've heard stories of doctors, particularly in surgical rotations, where they've been called upon to do a double shift or the case might be that they're attending to an emergency or as as we know in, in many of our jobs, the sort of you're often overwhelmed with the sheer paperwork that's required to offer proper care, continuous care to patients. So it's any number of duties uh, that doctors are called upon from day to day and night to night to carry out their tasks professionally. And, and I think what is most disturbing is that uh, many doctors in surveys and, and certainly in discussions I've had with them, they have a, a genuine fear that because of the exhaustion and because of the excessive hours that they fear making a clinical error or a mistake for a patient. Uh, and that must be disturbing. You're listening to Hack. I'm Tim Shepherd, and I'm joined by Hayden Stevens. He's one of the lawyers behind a court case about underpayment and excessive workloads in the health sector. And I was thinking, you know, when you watch movies and shows about being a doctor or a nurse or just working in the health sector, they seem to glorify this idea of, you know, putting everything into the job, staying back late, doing everything you can for a patient. Is there a culture that might need to change within that sector, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I think there is certainly among senior doctors, for some of them, a view that says, uh, hey, I did it this way, you ought to do the same. And we know, in, you know, medic, medicine is not the only profession where people who have uh, secured positions of influence or in, in positions of leadership might take that view in relation to junior staff moving through the industry. I think uh, for any doctor who is graduating from medical school, I think they understand that this is a profession where from time to time they'll be working long hours uh, and are called upon to go, you know, as it were, the, the extra mile for the patients that they care for. I, I don't think there's any, certainly in the doctors that I've spoken to, any question that they understand that that's their obligation. I think really their concern is is twofold. The first is that what they are being called upon is excessive. It's causing a burnout and, and an enormous burden on not only their treatment of patients, as I've, as I've referred to, but also their own well-being. And their second concern is unless these hours are acknowledged, that is, unless my employer pays me for the hours that I work, then nothing is going to change. And so this action is really about forcing hospitals to be held accountable for this pattern of behaviour that's been allowed to go on for too long. 
Do we know why it's happening? Is it a deliberate effort from the people running the hospitals or is it understaffing? I think it's a question that's probably best answered by health authorities, but certainly from the stories I've heard and and the, the research that we've conducted, it's as though it's embedded in the very business model of hospitals. So every year, like any business, they set budgets and within that budgets, there are line items for staff and the costs of those staff. But there seems to be this acceptance that this discretionary effort of the type that I've described is is free labour and it ought to be assumed that way in the upcoming period. And so right to the, the basics of budgeting, we see errors made around estimating what actual number of hours are required for the purposes of proper care of patients. And as I said, if, if hours aren't being properly recognised by supervisors, by heads of department, then those budgets will inevitably be wrong. And then therefore, this practice, as I said, is very much cemented, embedded in the in the business model that our hospital system runs on. Yeah. And let's get into the underpayment element of this, which is probably underpinning the whole court case, I imagine, because probably a lot of people out there who say, well, look, we'd all like a bit of a bit more money. We'd all like to get paid more. But is this about getting paid more for the work they're doing or actually just getting paid for the hours that they're doing? It's the latter. This is not a call for higher rates of pay. It's simply no more complex than the simple proposition that please pay me for the hours that I've worked at the rates that we've previously agreed. It's no more difficult to understand than that. This is not a call for changes in terms of conditions at all. It's In fact, it's a call for compliance to those terms and conditions. And when it comes to the legal side of things, is there much precedent for cases like this involving young healthcare workers? I mean, how do you go about making this argument in court? Uh, certainly, uh, from the perspective of prosecuting these matters by way of a class action on behalf of junior doctors, uh, no, I'm, I'm not familiar with any other case that's progressed through that frame of an action, such as a class action or representative proceedings. The courts from time to time do deal with underpayment cases in medicine and, and across uh, other industries, of course. But certainly, uh, from our, from my own experience, this is the first of its kind where junior doctors en masse are calling for change and are utilising the class action system in Australia to enforce that change. And so if this case is successful, then it could have pretty big impacts down the line. Certainly, I think uh, the conversations that I've had with interstate bodies and also bodies overseas, people are watching this case with a great deal of interest because it might not surprise listeners to know that the problems I'm, I'm sharing in relation to our own health system here in Victoria are mirrored across other hospitals and other health authorities interstate and overseas. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people watching on to see what happens. Hayden Stevens, thank you so much for coming on Hack. It's been a pleasure, Tim. Thank you. Hack on Triple J. That was Hayden Stevens there, a lawyer leading a class action for junior doctors in Victoria who allege they've been underpaid. And look, so many people are reaching out on this topic. Someone says more staff and funding would help, but the government loves to neglect the health sector. Another person, I worked within the surgical side of the healthcare field and you'd be shocked at the hours that registrars are working. Also got a nurse. They say they often work with tired and burnt out junior doctors. They're often picking up with their picking up their medication and making clinical errors. And Jay from Boon Warring Country says they're a young person working in allied health. My whole team is burnt out with no end in sight for any of us. Hack. Introducing your boyfriend to your family can be stressful. Will mom embarrass you? Will dad approve? And will he get along with your husband? 
Yes, you heard that right. Your husband, polyamory. Polyamory. On Triple J. Look, if you ask me, The Bachelor is crook, crook for a number of reasons, but the latest season has got people fired up because of the way it's represented polyamory. Members of the poly community say the show's misrepresenting the issue and is doing more harm than good. Do you get annoyed by this as well? Let me know. You can text in on 0439 75 And look, if you're confused by it all, then don't worry because Hacks reality TV expert Shalala Madora is here to break down the whole saga for you now. Stacey, you didn't receive a rose. Please take a moment. Judge me, I don't care, but I freaking love reality TV. There's something about being able to peep into the intimate aspects of people's relationships that viewers find really intoxicating. The real, not so real drama helps too, just quietly. And while I love the messiness, I know it's not the best place to explore nuances. Jessica Nabbin, Polly Amory, Felix, open relationship, where to begin? This year's Bachelor franchise had a polyamory storyline. That is, the practice of having more than one romantic or sexual partner with the informed consent of all involved. I've always questioned, like, the traditional views of monogamy. Basically, contestant Jess had a dude on the outside. She could see other people, but he couldn't. But she didn't tell Felix the Bachelor about this other relationship. I don't want to be in a relationship with someone who has two boyfriends. Even though he was kind of dating a lot of girls at once himself. Drama! Is Jessica able to see herself in a monogamous relationship? Because I'm starting to fall in love with her, but I just can't do a polyamorous relationship. It was the major plot line. Patrick Lenton is the deputy arts and culture editor for The Conversation. And for the last few years, he and a mate have had a podcast that reviews eps of The Bachelor and Bachelorette. He says the polyamory plotline overshadowed the rest of this year's show. We had three bachelors, we had uh, over 30 women uh, at the beginning, and for some reason they weren't able to actually create any sort of believable or interesting romances. They weren't, there wasn't really any other stories except for this, what often felt like a contrived polyamory plotline. And it kind of worked. People were frothing it. It was because they realised that this is still a somewhat or quite scandalous and uh, dramatic concept for many people. And yeah, that's a bit of a problem. The show goes for drama and it's always important that they villainise somebody. Hospo worker Sarah has been happily poly for years now. Monogamous people and polyamorous people will have a lot of trouble being compatible and sustaining a good relationship. She says the storyline in The Bachelor was seriously problematic. So The Bachelor straight out said that he was falling in love with Jess, but he could only do a monogamous relationship. Jess said that she's always questioned monogamy. It basically ended in an ultimatum. She thinks the show just reinforced misconceptions about what polyamory is. The concept of being open or poly in contemporary culture has sort of become misappropriated uh, as a term by people who just want to accuse people of uh, being promiscuous or being unable to commit. And she thinks that's really bad for people who might be questioning monogamy. Polyamorous people are brought up thinking that they're broken or wrong for wanting to love more than one person and they end up in unsuccessful relationships where um, they cheat or they feel uh, unfulfilled and then they feel the guilt of that and they don't understand why. At first I was really 
actually really excited about it. I thought, oh, here we go. This is finally representation of a lifestyle that people are definitely exploring more about. Eva Sless is an author and sexpert who also happened to be mad into this year's Bachelor. She says there are a lot of ways for people to explore polyamory, but the basic rules remain the same. The main tenets of polyamory or any kind of open relationship, whether it's just swinging or, you know, meeting a couple at a pub one night and going, oh, let's see what, they, you know, let's buy them a few drinks. It is communication and trust and boundaries are so important. Jess's lack of disclosure about being poly initially and her inability to discuss it openly with Felix didn't sit well with Eva. It, a disservice to anybody who really wanted to understand polyamory and hadn't before. I love you. And Sarah says the whole format of the Bachelor franchise casts the poly community in a bad light. If you break down the show, it's sort of focused on dating multiple people until you find the one. So the representation that polyamorous people are temporary partners for monogamous people to play with and then discard when they do find their one forever person um, is pretty demeaning. Pat on Triple J. Yeah, Shalala Madora with that report there. New Zealand has declared a national state of emergency for only the third time in its history. On Triple J. Yeah, you may or may not remember Cyclone Gabriel. It was off the coast of Queensland near Norfolk Island several days ago. But over the last couple of days, it's made its way down to New Zealand and is causing a lot of damage. Sadly, four people, including a child and a volunteer firefighter, have died. There's also been lots of damage, huge landslides, flooding and hundreds of thousands of people left without power. Let's find out more about what's going on. Ben Knoll is a meteorologist from the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research in New Zealand, and he joins me now. Ben, thanks for coming on Hack. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Look, some of the footage I've seen is really shocking. Just how bad is it over there? Yeah, Cyclone Gabrielle um, is going to go down into the record books as one of New Zealand's worst weather disasters in, in recorded history. I mean, at this point, we're looking at widespread destruction uh, to agriculture, horticultural lands. We've seen loss of life. We've seen communities completely cut off. Just to guess, put it in perspective, from about the top of the North Island to the bottom of the North Island, about 600 Ks, that's the same distance from maybe Sydney to the Gold Coast or Sydney to Melbourne, is dealing with some level of destruction. So this is going to be a long, long road to recovery for the North Island. And we, we still actually don't know the full scale of destruction. Um, we're having to use helicopters to get into some of the worst hit communities that are cut off. And unfortunately, we're, there are fears that there will be additional uh, loss of life. There's about 1,500 people uh, still unaccounted for at this point. Yeah, and this is happening on the North Island. And that's where I understand where most people in the country live. Can you give a sense of what it's like in the region that's worst affected? Yeah, so New Zealand has a little bit more than uh, 5 million population. Auckland has about 1.5 million of that. Um, the part of the North Island that has been most affected is the East Coast. It's quite a rural part of New Zealand, but it has um, quite a bit of agricultural, uh, horticultural importance. And what we've seen in that region is entire farms that have, have been wiped out, apples floating in floodwaters, cornfields um, completely flattened, strawberry rows decimated, um, not to mention um 
basically in inaccessible regions of, of the country, um, you know, what was coming up to a harvest season. So this is going to have a pretty devastating impact on the on the New Zealand economy. And we've been hit time, time and time again the last couple of months, um, owing to some of the same climate drivers Australia has been affected by, La Nina, um, and earlier the Indian Ocean Dipole. Those two things which brought those, uh, contributed to those floods in Australia have come across the Tasman and touched our, uh, our shores here in New Zealand as well. So uh, we are tied together with some of those same things that Australia has felt recently. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't usually think of New Zealand and storms like this. And you mentioned it will go down in the history books. It's also the only, the third time I understand that the national state of emergency has been declared. Yeah, and the last time, I believe, being the Christchurch earthquakes a little more than a decade ago now, um, we ha- have seen several impactful cyclones um, in-, in history. The-, the last most memorable one happened in 1988. That was Cyclone Bola. I would equate this to being um, s- along the lines of Australia's worst cyclones. You think of Yasi, and I think that was 2011 in Queensland. Um, on, a- on an international scale, you think of like a superstorm like Sandy that slammed into New Jersey and New York. And this is the level uh, uh, that we're talking about here. Uh, you know, it wasn't just the rain. It was like three, four months worth of rain in 24 to 36 hours. Wow. Um, we saw over half a meter of rain. Uh, we saw incredible storm surge, record storm surge. So waves overtopping these coastal communities. So um, it's going to be, uh, like I mentioned earlier, months to maybe years to actually fully, fully recover from this event. And with La Nina continuing, we are still at risk. Uh, before the summer ends for perhaps additional events. So it may not be over yet um, here uh, in uh, storm-stricken New Zealand. Yeah, we've only got about 30 seconds left, but I do want to ask you what is happening with the weather at the moment. Do you think the worst of this cyclone has passed for now or is there still more to come? Yeah, the worst is over. And fortunately for New Zealand, we're about to enter about a maybe a 10 to 14 day period of much more settled conditions. This will be a good opportunity for those hard hit areas to really assess the damage. But I, as I said before, as we go into March, there is another opportunity for wet weather. So um, no doubt we'll be watching that really closely. Um, and uh, certainly with all of the impacts that have been felt here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Okay, Ben, Noel, thanks so much for coming on Hack and do your best to stay safe. Thanks for having me. Features Hack on Triple J. And that's all we have time for on the Hack podcast. Dave Marchese will be back tomorrow. Have a good one.